Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. I was shocked to learn a few years ago that the US government vetoed military emissions reporting under the Kyoto Protocol. When I asked about this, it quickly became apparent that a lot of well-informed people were simply unaware that the single largest consumer of oil in the world and the single largest polluter was not included in national emissions reporting requirements under UN frameworks. Fast forward to the 2015 Paris Agreement, and while the exemption has disappeared, the situation remains largely unchanged. Totaling just 1.3 million active service members, but with a vast emissions profile, the US military for all intents and purposes is like another country, a shadow country hiding in plain sight. However, up to now, information on US military emissions has been hard to come by. Step forward our guest today, Dr. Ben Nymark, who alongside colleagues published a path-breaking study in 2019 detailing the scale of the US military's carbon footprint. As we get into in this conversation, the research paints a troubling picture of national security doctrine entwined with the climate crisis, carbon lock-in as new weapons systems come online, and the ethical quandaries posed by environmentally friendly weaponry. The, the U.S. military sees itself as a first responder. It sees itself as a humanitarian actor. It sees itself as a protector of national security assets. And so all of these things factor into, a cli into climate change discourse, you know, particularly as climate change gets rooted in a national security discussion. What it misses out on, and we argue purposefully, is the U.S. military as a larger climate actor role in contributing to climate change. This is Imperfect Utopias or Bust Global Governance Futures. Dr. Ben Nymark is a senior lecturer at the Lancaster University Environment Centre. A human geographer and political ecologist by training, his research focuses on the socio-ecological effects of military supply chains and their wider environmental footprint. We spoke with him in March 2022. You know, I guess... I mean, I first stumbled across this whole issue around uh, military emissions, listening to an interview with, with Barry Sanders that I shared with you from 2010, where he was talking about his book, The Green Zone, uh, The Environmental Cost of Militarism. And it was a real shock to me that military emissions weren't included in the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, it's kind of shocking that so few people actually know about that. And it, it made me think, well, really, this is kind of the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room that nobody's talking about. Uh, as you put it in your paper, the US military's carbon bootprint. So I guess to kick off, I'd be curious to ask, I mean, how did you stumble across this, this topic, this issue? Um, was there perhaps a personal experience or any kind of serendipity in, in, in switching you on to the, the, the question of militarism and environmental destruction? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I love, uh, you know, th these are the questions I love to ask as well. Sort of like, where, you know, what, 
what's the sort of genealogy of research projects, right? And, you know, finding out what the backstory is. Um, so the idea of like critical work, and I think this is a great, great one as well. Um, the idea of like the critical work of the US military really started from a conversation that um, in a pub in the in Norway of all places, right? Both Patrick Bigger and I, who's a who is an academic, a US or two US uh, academics living and working in the northwest of England, were in all places Norway at a, a green economy conference. Patrick was doing work around green finance. Um, and I was doing research on land grabbing and biofuel production in Madagascar. That's where I primarily do my research on smallholders in Madagascar and commodity production. I had just uh, come over from my first academic posting in Norfolk, Virginia, of all places, which is at Old Dominion University, which is Norfolk is the site of the largest sort of naval installation in the world, right? Norfolk, Virginia. This is where all the sort of big shipbuilding and, and um, amphibious sort of, you know, training goes on in Norfolk um, and Virginia Beach. And um, from, from that experience working there, I had this kind of, I knew the Navy was playing around with the idea of using sort of advanced biofuels, uh, uh, third generation biofuel production. And... Uh, just, you know, through conversation, Patrick and I were throwing around the idea and he had this idea, this cockamamie idea of, of uh, doing the environmental costs of the war on terror. Right. And we were just, you know, we were just sort of throwing around ideas. And after a few pints, we came up with this sort of plan to do something on the footprint of the U.S. military and potentially the war on terror and how the U.S. military is is a climate actor. Um, you know, and we returned home and or, you know, where we were living at that, at that time. And we realized that getting the data on the war of terror was not as feasible as, you know, one, one would imagine, right? Um, a lot of this operation was going on in black sites. Uh, they were called, uh, you know, you know, kind of secret ops and whatnot. And um, we just sort of parked that idea. And we're thinking about how we could sort of illustrate the U.S. military as a climate actor. And coming from Norfolk, I sort of, you know, came up with this idea of, well, what about the Great Green Fleet, right? And uh, Patrick and I started to, to develop this idea of the Great Green Fleet, which was this new uh, fleet that had been launched in 2018 by the U.S. Secretary of Naval, Navy, the Admiral um, the Secretary General um, uh, Malbus to sort of, you know, show U.S. military uh, might through uh, advanced drop in advanced biofuels, right? And so it, it's patterned off of uh, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, in the you know turn like probably I think in 1910, uh, the 16 battleships, the Great White Fleet, which he sort of uh, had you know toured around the world to show u.s kind of dominance at that time imperial power um and it was a switchover from coal-fired ships to oil right? and it was and it, so this idea that u.s power really began with a sort of advanced uh frigate of of ships that can um you know basically change the way in which 
energy, the, the way in which these ships were fueled and then thus powered by a new energy source, right? And um, this was fascinating to us. And, and we started to develop this paper called Weaponizing Nature, um, which sort of played off the idea of, of both the U.S. military's sort of weaponizing of biofuels, but also weaponizing of climate change discourse to justify a sort of new fighting force. Um, and this was super, for us, we were, we, we were really excited to work on this. And, it, you know, it, it brought up the Great Green Fleet demonstrated two really big things for us. So it was, it was beyond just sort of simple greenwashing. This was like, for us, a real attempt to justify a new type of war, kind of uh, a new way of, of, of fighting, uh, flexible, sort of untethered from typical logistical infrastructures of fossil fuels. So nature, biofuels in this case, was a way to, to sort of power a new military fighting force that, um, you know, in far-flung territories of military adventurism, uh, you know, fighting terrorist cells in the Horn of Africa, the Western Sahel, uh, you know, the Islamic State. Um, I think the tagline for the Great Green Fleet was the, the fuel or biofuel that the Islamic State can't make or seize, right? This was that sort of tagline, right? And, and the second thing which was unexpected from this paper uh, was that um, the U.S. Navy in developing this fleet was also developing the biofuel business, right? It, and it, it's not surprising to us now when we think about it, but it, 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 was, it was just kind of really interesting to us to see how much the military itself it makes markets. It moves markets. It's a major political economic actor. Um, it, you know, really drove the biofuel market. Um, you know, biofuel kind of refineries were built up around the idea that the Great Green Fleet would then use these biofuels um, and in, in their ships. And so, you know, we we were really playing around with all these different complex ideas and thought about a way to put them all together. And we, you know, we came up with the idea of geopolitical ecology, both of us being political ecologists or understanding of sort of granular local level effects, multi-scalar effects, um, <coughs> uh, and environmental change but also combining that with political economy and critical geopolitics. And this is where this sort of amalgamation came up, this geopolitical ecology, um, you know, a way to make sense of it all. And I was wondering if you could talk to where this big shift sits within the kind of claims of the fall of a U.S., Hegemony. We had Al McCoy on recently talking about this and these claims. Is, is this shift to the green a way to reassert dominance or is it kind of something different? Yeah, um, that, that's a, it's a really interesting question. The, it, the impetus for a kind of, as you could, you could argue, you say a shift to the green, um, recent shifts such as the U.S. Army sort of decision just recently to, to sort of think through what a net zero strategy by 2050 would look like um, and, you know, other sort of discourse coming out, such as the Great Green Fleet. It's hard to 
And we have this tendency to think about um, a single impetus, right? A single kind of reason or rationale for why, you know, huge institutions sort of do and make decisions. And this is one of the things that that came out of this research, I think, <laughs> to put it bluntly. I mean, you know, this kind of critical geopolitics position, the rethinking, you know, a sort of counter to kind of IR and green IR think realism is that, you know, that the military is all one thing, that there's just this kind of single kind of policy that comes out of it. It's actually an amalgamation of multiple, multiple organizations, institutions, private and public actors. Um, yes, the DOD has a kind of position and the Pentagon has a, a sort of stated position, but in reality, there's significant, I think, and multiple reasons why an institution such as the, the Department of Defense might want to pursue a green strategy. One of them is, is cost. You know, right? I mean, if, you know, cost not only, you know, in terms of, of economic and financial costs of, of being able to secure and purchase hydrocarbons, um, but also cost in terms of loss of life and bloodshed in terms of having to, to uh, move and protect, you know, oil supplies around the world. Um, the, the logistical infrastructure for hydrocarbons is massive. And, and, you know, we saw during kind of the, the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, just have the loss of, of, of life soldiers and civilians in terms of having to fuel up, right, to put it bluntly, and, and to be able to, um, you know, protect that life in, in terms of the Khyber Pass, being able to bring, you know, fuel supplies to troops and in very kind of faraway places. There's also a, a kind of mission-ready sort of reason, right? And so, you know, how and why can uh, troops and missions um, be, have the most advanced technology that allow them to, to complete particular missions? And, and many times that might not be fossil fuels, right? That might be um, other types of energy sources that just might be easier. You know, the, the military is a mission-focused institution right they they're given a mission and they they calculate the ways in which they can um sort of approach that mission in its in its most sort of logical and um calculated kind of approach to solving it right to getting you know and, and one of those ways is is to um figure out simpler easier cheaper um fuel and energy sources. The, the last thing I'll, I'll say on this is that there's also a, a significant uh, kind of a, approach uh, to um, green the military because they're spending and they see themselves as a significantly vulnerable institution, right? You have a number of bases all over the world that are on coastlines, that are in flood zones, Right. And they're now having to sort of particularly the U.S. Army who, you know, who are are in very, very vulnerable sort of um, states of play where, you know, you have um, 
bases being flooded, right? Um, Norfolk, Virginia in particular, having to build huge seawalls to protect its kind of infrastructure. And so, you know, there's a, a real kind of practicality to wanting to be green um, in a sense that they're going to need both the resources and the sort of person power to adapt to a, a climate changing world. That's oh, fascinating, Ben. And I think there's there's so many threads we could pick up there. I mean, one I'd like to pursue a little bit is, <clears throat> you know, thinking about what is the military as an actor in global politics? As you said, you know, the military is not monolithic. It's mm-hmm. this very large organism, if you will. Uh, and that has quite, quite significant, say, um, it's quite a challenge ontologically, we might say thinking about the the military as as an actor mm-hmm. and uh, to make it very concrete the key the key unit within this organism that you focus on a lot is the defense logistics agency dash energy the dla dash e which i doubt many people have heard of but it seems as if as you say this is a, this is a key institution that quote hides in plain sight and in a way pumps the blood of the military around the organism um, so, if we were to try and ident- identify the most important actor, I wonder if you would privilege that actor in understanding how the military operates as a cohesive actor. But I'm also curious to push a little bit more because one of the key findings in the paper is that the US military and this DLA agency in particular, as you say, are not lumbering at all. They're actually highly functional, highly efficient. So it seems as if, yes, you have this, you, you do have a degree of fragmentation, yet compared to many state agencies, we might say, or even the nation state as a sort of monolithic structure, this is a much more efficient, much more um, effective form of organization. Yeah. I mean, and this is one of the, you know, you ask one of the key surprises of the of like doing research like this. I remember alongside um, a close colleague who who helped, uh, who led the paper, Alva Belcher, you know, alongside Patrick and I and Cara Kennedy, who, who uh, did a lot of the work on the, uh, on the life cycle analysis. It was amazing how, how, we came across this sort of agency, the Defense Logistics Agency, by ch- by chance. We were reading um, a, a paper, and in the footnotes, they mentioned that data um, to calculate the LCA of uh, of one aspect of the Iraq War uh, was calculated using hydrocarbon purchases through the DLAE. Right. We, we sort of looked it up. We Googled it. Right. We, you know, three, we, we had very little sort of knowledge of this of this um, sub agency. And it just it sprang upon us that actually all purchases by the U.S. sort of Department of Defense is done through the Defense Logistics Agency. Right. This unknown agency, which has hundreds of offices around the world does all the work on purchasing and contracting for the U.S. military from MREs, meals ready to eat, to Humvees, to all its hydrocarbons. It's basically a one-stop shop, right? And it happens 
to be the largest institutional hydrocarbon purchaser in the world, right? right? As a single institution. And, you know, you know, just just to get a picture, the DLAE, which is a sub-agency of the DLA of the Defense Logistics Agency, its daily sort of operations, energy operations, the agency handles 14 million gallons of fuel worth like 53 million per day, right? And and so US dollars. And and so, you know, we were just sort of dumbfounded by how little we knew about this agency. And yeah, this is one example of a kind of part of this larger entity we like to call the U.S. military, um, but, you know, handles logistics, right? And at one level, probably the most important operator in making sure that the four branches of the U.S. military is able to sort of both fulfill its missions, but also, you know, operate in the everyday, right? From making sure canteens are filled and and Coke machines have their Coca-Cola on base, right? You know, from the simple mundane to the, you know, forward operating basis. This is the, the, the entity. And it causes us to pause and rethink how we look at large entities. You know, one of the, the power the powers that, that the theoretical sort of strengths that geopolitical ecology does, it, it allows you to do that granular on the ground, you know, on the ground where, where capitalism touches down and where, um, you know, there's clearly effects um on you know local people of everyday sort of both military or, or other types of environmental change but it allows you to look up again at these institutions you know these massive institutions which are really really hard at one level to study they're challenging right researchers find it very difficult to do so. And so um, this framework allows you to sort of piece apart these these institutions and focus on the singular kind of actor that is might be causing the effect, such as hydrocarbon consumption and production and, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions from that, um, while also taking in the entity of the uh, larger institution, the Department of Defense, right? And, and so um, it allows us to do that. And we don't want to overcharacterize that institutions aren't still somewhat um, lumbering, right? That the Department of Defense, um, you know, turns on a dime. It most definitely does not. Um, having said that, there are entities within the Department of Defense that um, clearly operate much quicker and are much more flexible and uh, and um, have shown, you know, through our research that um, are able to function at speeds that um, taken as a whole, you could not imagine. So I have two kind of questions. One just is a kind of like logistical question of, was it difficult to get the data to do these studies? I mean, was it challenging? You had to do freedom of access or freedom of information requests. 
Was it something that the US military were like willing to hand over their emissions? Is it something that they keep a close eye on? It's kind of like first. And then secondly, much more abstract. You mentioned earlier about how like the GGF was kind of weaponizing biofuel and also like weaponizing climate discourse. So can you speak a bit more to like, what is the weaponization of climate discourse? How is the US military weaponizing like climate change? Yeah, two great questions. Um, so access to the data was not as hard as one would imagine. Um, I, to tell you the truth, the it, I, I think once Freedom of Information Acts are there are themselves their own type of project, right? If anyone has ever had to fill one out or or request them, um, they're individualized. So it depends. You you really need to find what agency you're applying to, right? And they, each agency has its own kind of set of rules and formatting for how you request what you're requesting. And once you settle on what you're going to request, uh, for us, it was hydrocarbon, um, uh, you know, hydrocarbon purchases over uh, a particular period. Then you, um, you know, fill some forms <laughs> and request it, right? And, um, you know, almost with the expectations that you're going to get resistance, that, you know, this is secret or sensitive information in a certain way. Um, but they came back to us with fairly technical questions of, of sort of, you know, what volumes do you want it in? And, and, you know, we, you know, we only go back seven years, you requested 12, you know, and we were a bit astonished, like, okay, yes, we, these are questions we can handle. Um, no, we would like them you know, split up by, by the four branches of the military. And we understood at that point that different fuels have different sort of greenhouse gas emission outputs. So could you break it up by types of fuel? And they did. And I think the biggest challenge was that they didn't, that we negotiated because it was a, a, a research project um, and we were an education institute uh, that uh, the cost would be 70 US dollars and they wouldn't take a debit card. So I had to get my mother to write them a check and send it to them from the US, but they lost the check. And so they did it like, like for free at that time. Like that was the biggest like challenge we had. Now I'm not saying that's not the challenge we always have. Like, you know, we're, you know, in, in subsequent projects we've had asked and we've gotten denied because of, you know, questions about sensitivity and, and you know, and other, and, other things that the U.S. military isn't as willing to share, but the you know if you're looking at something that is um, part of a kind of recognized Freedom of Information Act request and is reasonable, they'll they'll share that data. I mean, it's it's their more generally their right to do so. Um, Having said that, the U.S. military is not necessarily as forthcoming with their, you know, sort of internal calculations of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's something we, we could discuss as well, which, again, you know, means that you need to sort of do this independently. You need to do this research independently um, and then thus find out what it is you'll be calculating and then request you know, those data points from them, right? Either it's hydrocarbons or 
purchasing of other kind of uh, material inputs, which would cause a particular sort of greenhouse gas emissions. In terms of the weaponizing of nature, um, yeah, this is a really, really um, interesting and sort of large question um, that we really only touched the surface on. Um, you know, you asked before what it is about the U.S. military that might be a kind of impetus for going green. And, you know, besides the, the reasons I, I suggested, I also think that the U.S. military sees a an opportunity here in terms of justifying a mission, right? They're, they're not just, um, you know, the, the U.S. military sees itself as a um, first responder. It sees itself as a humanitarian actor. It sees itself as a protector of, uh, you know, national security assets. And so all of these things factor into a climate into climate change discourse, you know, particularly as climate change gets rooted in a national security discussion. Um, henceforth, if you know our strategic assets overseas, oil refineries, um, access to strategic ports, um and other sort of waterways are being affected by rising sea levels then the u.s military has a justification for then um protecting it needing military hardware resources and support to carry out those missions um if communities around the globe are particularly vulnerable to sea level rise and or hurricanes and what might be sort of natural hazards. Um, and the US military would then kind of justify it action on being the first responders to those places, right? And then thus justifying resources, material, person power to carry out those missions. And so, all this gets rooted in a kind of climate change discourse of national security, a very close sort of binding of national security and climate change, right? Climate change as a national security issue. What it misses out on, and we argue purposefully, is the U.S. military as a larger climate actor role in contributing to climate change, right? And then thus sort of erases climate change as a national security issue that the military is best positioned to respond to, then thus erases the conversation, we argue, of the US military and those missions, those new missions, in actually contributing to larger climate change scenarios, right? And so, you know, climate change is crises, right? Climate change is as security. You know, there was a, a during COP26, there was an important article that came out in the New York Times and, you know, uh, sort of reifying national security and, you know, climate change and the U.S. military's role in, in 
in being positioned to that. Well, you know, we were writing an op-ed in, in how that, that same discourse erases the U.S. military as a global climate actor, and they need then to um, declare what their greenhouse gas emissions are, right? And, and, you know, in parallel to that, you know, we we submitted it to the New York Times, and they didn't accept it because the next day they published that article, <laughs> you know, right? And so... You know, this is what's coming at the front end. And, you know, we're yelling and screaming at the back end saying, you know, well, wait a minute. You know, you you know, how are you, how are militaries, global militaries hiding their carbon emissions? One of the things I loved about your weaponizing nature paper that you weren't afraid of kind of highlighting, I think it was a quote from Sharon Burke, the former assistant secretary of defense, that the essential role of the army is breaking things and killing people. And that's a, a quote from the... Uh, from the interview, and, uh, I just when we think about kind of greening or greenwashing in a commercial sense, it kind of it makes sense in terms of okay, cleaning up supply chains, you're reducing your impact on the environment, and th- this isn't that, and it's it's quite a, it, often it seems that this is grouped together as okay, but so my local kind of uh, drugstore might be cleaning up its supply chains and everything. And the, the, the army's doing that as well. And I, I think you really expertly unpack the fact that, that this is something quite different to that. But then one thing I wanted to also pick up on is with the Great White Fleet, there was a real sense of like, have no fear, the US is here. You know, they're kind of, we're protectors of the, not only the nation, but the globe. But with this Great Green Fleet, it, it, I get the sense that it's more of a national issue as opposed to the protecting of the national as opposed to protecting of the international. And I was just wondering if that was what was coming through for you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I guess there are two questions here. One is, one is sort of being really um, careful, you know, and I, I guess it's easy to do, right. To sort of challenge the greening of the, of the U S military, right. You know, um, questioning the sort of, basic premise that uh they're greenwashing right that 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 for us was a simple critique right this isn't just that um this was rooted in a whole host of things um one of them at the time was you know positioning u.s power the pivot to asia right and the you and the navy being kind of now stepping forward as the lead agency right as uh, the lead sort of branch of the military as as the one that's going to kind of lead the charge in terms of future military adventurism, you would say, a sort of counter China, right, which was Obama's sort of pivot to Asia at that time. And so, you know, there was a sense that the greening was of the the Navy, it wasn't, you know, this wasn't sort of Department of Defense policy, right? This was a sort of pet project of Mavis and his attempts to counter what was a very, and still is an intractable sort of carbon lock-in of the US military. Um, It was daring, but it was also a bold move to sort of show that the U.S. is coming on multiple fronts, right? We can, you know, um, I guess you could say, still be those global protectors, um, 
And it's almost as if, you know, the, the kind of idea that you're, you're you know, your F10 Mac Ford truck is still tough and manly, even though it's electric. You know, it's this idea that, you know, we could still build an electric Humvee, you know, and, and, but it's still tough. It withstands bullets and, you know, really be as kind of this sort of, uh, global powerhouse of because if anything the great white fleet was about showing u.s imperialism right and, and the great green fleet was also kind of attempts to show this this um raft of ships that were just still there to to show u.s hegemony of the high seas yeah i think it's really interesting that idea of the kind of that the electric humvee is just going to be it's just as good as a, you know the kind of your petrol or your diesel and but I was wondering how the implications of the Ukraine crisis have, have you seen since, since publishing that paper that there's been a kind of regression um, back towards the, the, the conventional fossil fuels? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're seeing, I'm seeing a few things coming out of the Ukraine crisis. I mean, to, 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 to stay on point, and, and if anyone is interested in, in sort of the, hidden environmental effects. I have very close colleagues at the um, Conflict and Environment Observatory, um, who we work very closely with on our new project um, on the military emissions gap, that have done excellent work just recently on the sort of local impacts of, of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So you can check that out. But I also think it's really interesting, right? So you see Germany's recent decision to buy F-35, right, U.S. Um, fighter jets, you know, which is a big sort of uh, policy decision since Germany hasn't ramped up their military and, and wasn't, it was sort of a, a, an agreement that they wouldn't. Uh, or Boris Johnson sort of leveling up photo op in, in the shipyards of Merseyside you know, a few weeks back, you know, this does not spell well for the future of, of greenhouse gas emissions from militaries, right? These are, you know, they, this is sort of reverting back to the, you know, this isn't cyber warfare, or this isn't, um, you know, other types of low impact kind of militarism. This is your traditional tanks ships and 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 airplanes which are you know really the bulk of greenhouse gas and wider environmental sort of um of you know wider environmental sort of um degradation that goes on during conflict these also have significant carbon lock-ins, right? Which is kind of, you know, in weapon, weapon systems development um, and or kind of things that are just extremely jets um, and ships that are extremely carbon intensive, right? Uh, I think uh, I think Oliver um, has noted in the past that uh, a fighter F-16 jet consumes like 1,500 gallons of fuel per hour. You know, a uh, non-nuclear aircraft carrier burns like six thousands of gallons of fuel per hour, right? And these, the lifetime of these like systems, right? I think the 
you know, 450 or something million US dollar F-16 jet program, you know, which will end in 2070, burns nearly twice as much fuel per hour, you know, um, the F-35 jet program as the F-16, right? And so, you know, these are the these are the the planes that Germany just bought, the F-35s, right? Um, and and so, you know, these carbon costs of this hardware has significant long-term kind of carbon lock-ins that we're going to find ourselves in this discussion, you know, 25, 30 years from now, you know, as these weapon systems start to, uh, as even though the majority of the military has already phased out, hopefully, other types of kind of carbon intensive activities, you know, these this weaponry will still be online, you know, and and contributing to to larger greenhouse gas emissions. And that's also another fascinating finding in the research is these is these path dependencies. And as you say, you know, we can look at the the going green agenda as we could dismiss that as greenwashing. But uh, that might actually be missing the point in the sense that it's setting in motion certain path dependencies and that the military, as with many major logistical state organizational structures and capitalist structures, um, uh, they, they set in motion certain socio-technical systemic transformations that begin to roll now and have, may have huge consequences decades down into the future. Um, so I was wondering if perhaps you could speak a little bit to that. And I, the other, the other aspect I think we, would be important to touch on is is also the the ethics to this this conversation and to to this issue. And you know, yes, the U.S. military has presented itself as sort of a humanitarian operator, first responder operator. Um, on the other hand, Secretary Mabus has also said that going green takes care of a military vulnerability that we have, particularly if we're moving into a context of energy scarcity. But I'm curious, you know, to what extent does the ethics of going green also inform this discussion in your research? Is that something you see out there in in debates? You know, the, this idea that, you know, ultimately we're going to be able to break things and and kill without polluting. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, just to, just to sort of start with that, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, headlines such as green bullets, right? Um, the recycling of bullets, shells, and, you know, um, you know, other just ideas by in which we find ourselves in a position of of i guess sanctioning what are um what are kind of the you know the hardware of, of that destroys things and kills people you know and um in a way you know it, in a way it's it's always and usually poised as a kind of defensive uh category you know well you know we need these you know this this military if anything russia shows us that we need this military to defend ourselves right and and um you know there's 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 a deeply 
you know, troubling kind of conversation there that you know, even even ourselves, even as researchers, we find ourselves in uh, doing this work. I mean, you, you know, we work closely with activists, anti-war activists and, and um, you know, others that were that we find ourselves in the room with having these conversations and you know just to give you an example it, it's deeply troubling and 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 just to give you an example we we were you know at cop 26 we had this launch of our new platform with with the conflict environment observatory um militaryemissions.org which you know poises to, to set a framework of calculating military emissions right it's about the military emissions gap you know how mil how militaries are able to sort of skirt uh, reporting their emissions to the UNFCCC, and how we need to create a framework by in which they can. And we tried our best to keep the the mission statement of COP26 and the project very straightforward, which was militaries need to declare their emissions, right? And with that, we could then start to because we can't cut what we don't know. Right. And then from that, we could then build off some of the leads of the U.S. Army and NATO itself. Jan Sotenberg has been a very kind of global leader on this, you know, um, in terms of sort of setting targets by in which militaries can then kind of adhere to. And, you know, we're in the room with with activists saying, is that it? Is that all you're asking for? Right. And so, you know, is it OK for them to just declare their emissions and we could cut targets? You know, and, you know, our argument to that, and we've written this in other places. No, we need a, a, a demilitarization. We need to start to, you know, a, a sort of the greening of the edges is not good enough. We need a, you know, a to cut sort of militaries. And that alone isn't good enough, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, so less guns is is okay, right? L you know, green filled with green bullets is even better. And so we find ourselves in this really tricky positionality of of wanting to sort of um, set goals for ourselves as researchers and um, reach certain targets of being able to kind of create frameworks by which militaries can report their emissions, but then deeply troubled by ethical questions of, you know, um, are we then contributing to a conversation of greening the edges of the U.S. military? That's my response to that, to that question, and it's not an easy one by any means. Um, yeah, I, again, one of the surprises was just the, and, and, you know, it shouldn't come to anyone's surprised that path dependency or, and or lock-ins are, um, particularly carbon lock-ins, are a thing that um, is real and is uh, needs to be, I guess you could say, um, addressed in parallel to any other conversation going on here, right? If you have these ships, planes, and weapon systems of other sorts that are being built in parallel for future purchase or, you know, where they'll be purchased by other states, you know, if the U.S. military won't purchase them because they're too carbon intensive, you know, where is the willing buyer out there? 
you know, Pakistan or or UEA or you know Saudi Arabia or you know Israel or you know anywhere else that will be a kind of purchaser of U.S. weapons. You know, are we sort of being able to address what are significant carbon lock-in trajectories? This was a, a somewhat of a surprise to us because when you start to dig in, these are the things that start to rear their ugly head. And then thus becomes a, a kind of a parallel sort of counter conversation of the weapons industry, right? The military industrial complex of, uh, of you know, a whole host of actors, um, you know, of private weapons manufacturers, uh, industries that run parallel you know, to the military, private industries of, of weapon systems and also training and development and that are, have to and need to be part of the conversation. Um, yeah, and which brings up a whole, you know, a whole array of other questions of, again, back to what is the military, right? And if we take a very monolithic and simplistic look at it, um, we miss out on probably what are some of the larger actors and players in this in this game. That's incredibly helpful, Ben. And it does feel sometimes as if as if sort of windows of opportunity are closing, new windows are opening, new paradigms are sort of foreclosing. It's sort of, you have this resurgence sort of national security doctrine currently in a context of a, the so-called Cold War 2.0. You have the military industrial complex operating as well within this, mm -hmm. this space. So Germany is now rearming, investing 100 billion euros into defense. Uh, they, they're scheduled to purchase uh you know uh, a whole load of f-35 fighter jets from lockheed martin mm -hmm. so this is all gearing up now and of course your paper actually does end on quite a quite a radical note i mean you say essentially look tinkering around the margins is not going to get us where we need to be and i quote the only way to cool off the furnace is to turn it off to shutter vast sections of the machine now that's a pretty radical proposition and indeed, it reminded me a little bit of what we hear in other areas of debate, such as, say, the degrowth conversation. The only way to really respect planetary limits is to stop <laughs> the, the, the insatiable sort of growth within a linear extractive, non-renewable economy. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't seem currently that policymakers are particularly receptive to these ideas, but I suppose it's important that uh, the, the case continues to be made. Yeah, and I and I guess, and I and and you wonder sometimes, you know, following also the debates of degrowth as as I've been myself, it's is whether or not those conversations are at this point for policymakers, right? And whether or not these the, the conversations around the parallel degrowth, but also kind of tinker around the, the military is is for is a conversation more for the general public at this point, right? A societal change that then finds its way into conversations of politics through communities and, and larger kind of social and communal change where, um, you know, a demilitarization and or 
hyper-consumption sort of e- economy becomes realistic or more realistic. Um, yeah, it takes a significant amount of political, I guess, <laughs> will to stand up and say we need to sort of we need to demilitarize as if it would take a significant amount of political will to stand up and and say we need to uh consume less right we need to cut you know a kind of hybrid consumption industry you know uh, industry right we need to cut consumption because of the whole host of harm it does to the planet, but also ourselves. And, and um, so I, I would argue that those conversations and those, those kind of radical calls are more for a larger public to, to consume in a way in which they can mobilize and to uh, understand the issues at hand and then thus have conversations, larger conversations, and have those conversations then sort of build on already existing organization and activism. Um, That would be the hope. Ideally, yes, it would be excellent if policymakers were listening. I mean, we have had some traction, again, a bit more limited in terms of scope and goals with the military emissions gap work. We've had some, you know, parliamentary questions being asked about the UK's reporting on military emissions and the potential for getting those emissions reported annually and then thus moving, you know, quite slowly towards some sort of targets. And so, yeah, we take a very radical approach and we believe, you know, the authors believed in that approach. in kind of getting out, hopefully, to a wider societal public. We, we wrote, because of that, we wrote a conversation piece, um, which is an academic blog, um, for those purposes. And, you know, all intents and purposes, it went viral. I mean, in an academic context, right? There was, you know, it got shared hundreds of thousands of times on Facebook and uh, translated into, you know, multiple languages. And it was... Uh, became a, a a topic that I think resonated with a lot of people. And just as I think we're, we're rolling to a close now, and I guess I've got uh, two final questions for you. The first is, what is the um, military emissions gap project? If you could explain a little bit about that. And then finally, and we, we ask this every week, it's or at every kind of like podcast, it's sort of in terms of reflections for the future or for any students of, you know, global politics, global governance, you know, do you have any advice? And within the geopolitical ecology frame, you know, what's what what is there? What's been left unsaid? You know, what's fertile ground for exploration? Where would you be looking next? Sure. Um, so just to start off, the military emissions gap is a uh, you know, this is a way, it's a platform to view uh your government's uh military emissions data, right? It's a platform. It's militaryemissions.org. Um, it's uh, a way in which to track, analyze, and sort of hopefully in one way close the military emissions gap, right? A way in which we could start to get states to report their own uh, government data, put it into one place, 
and then uh, sort of track what would be um, the reporting of that to the UNFCCC. There um, is very little reporting on that um, for historical reasons of the U.S. being exempt from the Kyoto Protocol of of reporting its own military missions, and then other states sort of followed suit. But um, that since has changed since Paris, the Paris Agreement, where they're not exempt, but still militaries are not forthcoming in doing this. We're asking them to do this. Um, and I think if states did ask militaries to do it, they would, right? They would, um, maybe I'm being naive and hopeful, but I think that um, they could do it. It's not, you know, to at least a scope one um, for, uh, life cycle analysis, right? These are sort of point source emissions. They could easily do that. Um and we would have a better handle on what's on on the the problem, right? Again, you can't cut what you don't know, and we're asking so for the data to be at least declared. And that's what the military emissions gap sort of project does. This is with the Conflict Environment Observatory, and this is part of a new project we're doing called Concrete Impacts. Um, this is our project, uh, ESRC funded project with. Um, with Durham and Lancaster on uh, sort of accounting for military life cycle analysis, right? And so of complex supply chains. So we're, we're basically measuring uh, the US military um, use of water, sand, and uh, cement for concrete production. Right, the sort of um, sort of oldest line of modern warfare, the use of concrete, and we're and we're sort of developing a life cycle analysis of carbon emissions and a wider environmental footprint of of concrete production. And so, this project is um, sort of partnered with the Conflict Environment Observatory to do the military emissions gap project as well. Actually, two separate parallel projects. And this sort of builds on, I think, one of your questions of, you know, what's next in terms of what can be done. I mean, if anything, a, a, a really important aspect of this research is a focus of logistics, military logistics and military supply chains. Um, a lot of research has been done on kind of end products of you know what is the greenhouse gas emissions um of certain you know an f-16 fighter or something along these lines but very few projects actually delve into um the resources that go into making that fighter right and you know which could be up to they say five to ten percent times the actual output of the original sort of scope one analysis of what is kind of point source greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's what this project concrete impact sort of does. We're building a model by in which to measure um, wider environmental footprints, namely air pollution of concrete production, but also greenhouse gas emissions. I think scholars, um, I mean, we've already have seen re really great work come out of this. And if I could just kind of list a few here um, that have built on 
geopolitical ecology. Meredith de Bloom did great work on sort of climate necropolitics. Uh, colleagues, Kevin Surprise in the US uh, did work using geopolitical ecology and geoengineering and US dollar hegemony. Um, Jarrett Magolis and Francis Mass, you know, discussed it in the context of illegal wildlife trade. And uh, close colleague Hannah Dickinson also does excellent work on um, sort of sturgeon and caviar production and geopolitical ecology, right? So it's already been taken in really, really fascinating directions. I think the power of, of geopolitical ecology is, it, is its ability to sort of play on um, what we call a kind of discursive material interplay, this co-constitution of global sort of institutional politics. And, and mixing that in a very effective way with kind of multi-scale environmental politics, which political ecology does very well, and um, a kind of critical geopolitics, as we mentioned before, a, a sort of way of, of not thinking through um, institutions and state institutions as monolithic, as slow, as lumbering, but um, a kind of decentering in a way of these kind of state-run institutions, these large institutions, and kind of keeping an eye on them while you're doing good, grounded political ecology work, I would argue. That's fascinating. I mean, really interesting. And I think on this podcast, we're always really keen to look at kind of like frame breaking or just taking institutions out of their context and seeing how they like are constituted by other things or how they interact across systems, you know, like complex analysis. And mm -hmm. so like, I guess an introduction to geopolitical ecology here has been like tremendously enlightening um, and excited to see what, you know, good stuff comes in the future, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, a key and being a sort of, I guess, by training a grounded political ecologist that studies smallholders in Madagascar, um, key to geopolitical ecology. And I think we, we haven't done this just yet, but we're trying to do it with the Concrete Impacts Project is to link up local level environmental effects, particularly to those most vulnerable and these large geopolitical and political economic institutions right and so making sure you're seeing where these institutions touch down but also with a keen eye back to them and and that's the challenge for scholars right to do that well is is difficult um but you know the framework hopefully is there if not let's build better frameworks perfect thank you so much for talking to us today yeah ben. brilliant thank thanks you, ben. thanks ben really really enjoyed that conversation really fascinating really glad we were able to bring this to our audience so uh, and look forward to to uh, watching that space in terms of what you do next thanks for tuning in to imperfect utopias or bust global governance futures if you liked this content please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.